0: If you have a Bible, please turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, is found on page 259 and the Bible's under your chairs or under the chair next to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can just go ahead and take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, so while you're turning there, I- I'll pray and then we'll continue in our series called Shepherd King, looking at the life of David throughout First and Second Samuel. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your kindness and goodness to us. And Father, we give you praise that you have, you've written a book and that in the Holy Scriptures, you reveal your character, your plan to not only redeem the whole cosmos, but also to save and rescue us. And Father, I pray that no matter what our week has been like, uh, whether it's been crazy or fantastic or we come into this room and we've been following you for a long time or we're just checking this whole Christianity thing out or still on the fence, Father, no matter where we are, I pray that by the power of your Spirit you would speak through the Word of God to us. And I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, that everything I say would always and only honor Jesus in his name. Amen. When was the best time in your life? Just think about it for a moment. When was one of those seasons in your life when it just sort of felt like everything was clicking? Maybe not perfect, but just everything felt like it's on the right trajectory. Things are going well. You ever had one of those seasons? Just you know picture like the opposite of my week and <clears throat> what you what you've got as you're thinking about that is the season of life that king david is experiencing as we approach second samuel chapter 7 see this man who he was born a into a very poor family he was a shepherd not a particularly glamorous job and he has been taken all the way to the king over all of Israel. And David was a warrior before he was a king, but now in this season of life, David is at complete peace with his enemies. There's no war going on. And in his first act as king, we saw it last week, he established worship at the center of Israel's life by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, which is now called uh, the city of David. You know your life is going well when the capital of your country is named after you. Okay, David's in a sweet season of life. And as we enter 2 Samuel 7, David's essentially just kicking back and relaxing in his palace. It is a fantastic season of life for David. He does something really interesting. He's sitting in his royal home, peace on all sides, established worship at the center of Israel's life, and he decides that he's going to make God a promise. It's where 2 Samuel 7 begins. He makes God a promise. And, and the promise is that he's going to build God a house, a temple. You see, for David, he feels it's deeply inappropriate that he is living in this beautiful home and the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord's very presence, is in a tent. He's like, there's something wrong here. And so this king who has peace on all sides decides that he is going to make God a promise. I'm going to build you a house, a temple. And God's response to David's promise in 2 Samuel 7 will actually reveal one of the most important characteristics of the God of Scripture, the creator God of the universe. In 2 Samuel 7, we're actually going to look at one of the most important passages of Scripture that reveals one of the most important characteristics of the creator God. And it all comes in response to David saying, God, all is well in my life, so I'm gonna make you a promise. So we'll see God's response beginning in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan, who's gonna be his mouthpiece to David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David looks at God and he says, I'm going to make you a promise. And God's response, I don't need your promises and I don't need a house. His response is, I'm going to actually make you a promise. I'm going to make you a promise. And the theologians call this promise that God makes to David, these types of promises are all over the Bible, he makes with David a covenant. And a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. And a covenant sort of lays out or gives structure to the relationship. But what's so amazing about God's covenant, his promise, his binding agreement with David is that if you notice, it's totally unilateral. He's not asking David to do anything for him and he just says, I'm making you a promise and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And this reveals one of the most important characteristics of the God of the Bible, the creator God, the only true and living God. It reveals, and this is the big idea both of this passage and of our time together this morning, it reveals that God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. It's our big idea that we're going to focus in on this morning. God is a promise keeper. Now, you may be saying, wait, it looks more like God's a promise maker. Well, for the creator God, there's no difference between the two. Our God is a promise keeper. And don't rush past that. I'm very tempted because I've been around the church and exposed to the Bible for quite some time now. I'm tempted to just like rush past, oh yeah, yeah, great, God's a promise keeper. The creator of the universe that made everything out of nothing, that doesn't need us at all, that is beyond all of our comprehension, that made us out of the overflow of his own glory, that God makes promises to us. It's astounding. The creator God looks at David and says, I don't need your promises. I don't need you to build me a thing. I'm gonna make a promise to you. Our God is a promise keeper. And the rest of this passage essentially focuses on answering two questions. The first one is, well, what does God actually promise David? What does God promise? And then the second question it's seeking to unpack for us is, how does David respond? So let's begin with the first one. What does God promise David? And I'll tell you, this, it's so important as students of the Bible and followers of Jesus that we know what God promises us. You know, there's very few things more disillusioning than banking on promises God has not made to us. I mean, just think about it. If you bank on the promise, oh, God's going to make me healthy, wealthy, and successful, and if I follow him really closely, my life will be relatively comfortable. That's a promise of the made-up American version of Christianity, God. It's not a promise the God of the Bible has made. So if you bank your life on it, it's gonna be relatively disillusioning. It will be disillusioning if you bank your life on promises God hasn't made, like make you healthy, wealthy, and successful, give you peace before you make every decision. You ever wrestled with that one? Well, I don't really have peace over this decision, so maybe I shouldn't make it. That promise just isn't there. Maybe if I follow Jesus for a long time, all my temptations will, will go away promise isn't there. What promise does God make to David? Well, he essentially, at the core of it, he promises him an heir, an heir, a descendant, a son. And what he tells David is that this son will essentially carry a few key characteristics. The first thing he tells David is that this descendant of his is going to be a savior. Take a look at verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This promised heir is going to bring rest, salvation from all of David's enemies. He's promising him a savior. The second thing he promises him, along with the Savior, is an eternal king. Verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, which is a biblical way of saying die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's promised that his heir will be an eternal king, a savior, an eternal king, and then thirdly, a son not just of David, but of God himself. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. What did God promise David? Our God, who's a promise keeper, what does he promise or covenant with David? He promises him that his son will be a savior, an eternal king, and the very son of God. God promises David nothing less than Jesus himself. Jesus the Christ. Now, to be sure, the immediate fulfillment of this promise is who, Bible scholars? Solomon, David's very next son, the third king over Israel. But if you take a look at history, or simply look at the Hebrew prophets that come later in the Old Testament, or the New Testament authors, they all tell the same story these promises were never fulfilled in the life of Solomon. Rather, these promises point beyond Solomon to a son of David greater than Solomon himself. I mean, just look at the promises a little bit more closely. First, he promises him, your son is going to be a savior that's gonna give you peace from all your enemies. And then you read the life of David and you read the life of Solomon. You don't find peace from enemies at all. There's a war all around them. Solomon never does away with the enemies of David. But then when you read the New Testament, the New Testament authors are clear that Jesus the Christ vanquished all of God's true enemies, all of our enemies, Satan, sin, death. In his life, death, death, and resurrection, Jesus has freed us from the power of Satan, the penalty of sin, and the hold of the judgment of death over us. For all who believe in him, there is salvation. Jesus is the savior that David was promised. Similarly, you look at this promise of an eternal king. You know what happened to Solomon's kingdom right after he died? It got split up. The kingdom wasn't eternal at all. But God did raise up a descendant of David's from the grave, Jesus Christ. And if you read Revelation chapter four, you see this incredible scene where Jesus, the resurrected and alive one, is seated on a throne and he's surrounded by a multitude who are declaring him to be the eternal king. Jesus is the king greater than Solomon. That it's really being promised here. And of course you have this promise that David's son would actually be the son of God. Jesus in the New Testament is said to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is his father. Even in the book of Hebrews it says that Jesus is the son of God who though he had no sin did actually learn obedience through the discipline he suffered. So Jesus had no sin and was not disciplined for his sin, but suffering, through his suffering, he was perfected, Hebrews says. What's David being promised by the promise keeper? Nothing other than the eternal savior, king, son of God, Jesus the Christ is going to come From his line. And the amazing thing about that is. That means that the promise to David. Is actually a promise to you. As well. Because God the Father sent Jesus. Into the world to save sinners. Like us. The promise of a savior, a king, a son of God. Is actually a promise that's been made to you. And to me. Okay, so let's hit pause for a moment and ask sort of the question, well, so what? Well, So what? What's that mean for you and me if this promise to David is actually a promise to us realized in Jesus Christ alone? Well, you know, maybe ask this question. What's the greatest promise anyone's ever made to you? What's the greatest promise anyone's ever made to you? Undoubtedly for me, the greatest promise that any person's ever made to me are the promises that Andrea made to me on our wedding day. It was one of the greatest days of my life despite the fact that Andrea's dad forgot the veil at home and my wedding started an hour later than it was supposed to, and I thought, maybe she's come to her senses. Um, But she hadn't, so we got married. Um, So essentially, uh, on our wedding day, Andrea made the most incredible promises to me. She promised to actually limit all of her options to little old me. She promised to love me in my most unlovely moments. She promised to cherish and be faithful to me despite all the ways I would sin against her. She promised to be naked with me in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, covenantally, financially. I mean, those are some incredible promises. But anyone who's married knows that on your wedding day, you mostly agree to promises. That's really the difference between a wedding and a marriage. On your wedding day, you agree to promises. You're like, oh, I acknowledge that you've made these promises to me. But a marriage is moving from, I agree to those promises, to on a daily basis, I'm actually going to depend on them. The difference between a, a wedding and a marriage is agreement with promises to dependence on them. Like, okay, I'll actually expose myself to you, all of me, the real me, you'll know me, because you've promised that no matter what you see, you'll never leave. So you move from like, oh, I acknowledge this while I'm wearing this tuxedo and everyone thinks we're fantastic to like tomorrow I'm actually going to depend on these promises. And and really that's the essence of Christian faith. Moving from I acknowledge that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ to I actually depend on them. I lean my full weight on them. Our God is a promise keeper and he has promised Jesus Christ who he sent into the world to save sinners like you and me. And so the question I want us to reflect on for a moment is, have you moved from acknowledging or agreeing with the promises God has made to save us through Jesus to depending on them? Have you moved from I acknowledge or I agree to, no, that, that's my hope in life and in death. I depend on them. See, for some of you, that may be a shift that you have to make for the first time today. You may have grown up in the church, believed in God. I mean, you probably, many of you, you can't remember a time that you didn't believe in God and believe that Jesus was his son, the savior of the world, life, death, resurrection on your behalf, but you've never actually shifted from, yeah, I agree that that's all true too. That's what I depend on for forgiveness of sins, for salvation. I'm done trying to justify myself. I'm done trying to earn God's favor through my good works, and I'm actually gonna depend on the good work of Jesus on my behalf. If you've never made that shift, really that's what it means to become a Christian. Even if you've called yourself a Christian your whole life. And so I want to invite you to make that shift today. You can simply do that by expressing it to God, talking to him. Saying, God, I've believed in you as long as I can remember, but I've never depended on the promise that you've made to me that has been fulfilled in Jesus. I want to put all my hope in him, not any hope in what I can do to procure your favor. And if if that's you, I'd invite you at the end of the sermon, there'll be folks in the back, they'd love to pray with you about that and even guide you through what it means to make that shift from, oh, I acknowledge to, I depend. Now, some of you, you've been in this room, you've been following Jesus for a long time and you have made that shift from, oh, I acknowledge to, I depend. But if you're like me and you've, you've become familiar with the things of God, you know the temptation to make that subtle shift back, right? That subtle shift to focusing primarily on knowing things about God rather than knowing him. That subtle shift back from, oh, I depend on the promises of God to my whole life is really about justifying myself. So when someone brings up something that I've done wrong, what's my first reaction? I defend myself. Because I I don't really depend on the identity I have in Christ, I just acknowledge it. But what I really depend on is the good I can do, what I can produce, what I can earn, what others think of me. If that's you, I just encourage you, every day of your Christian life is really a day to put off acknowledging the promises of God and put on depending on them. So don't think like, okay, I'm going to just, then today I'm going to make that shift and it's all going to be over. Now, the Christian life is ever more becoming what you already are in Christ, totally dependent on His promises. But if you'd like prayer, if there's a particular area where it's like, man, I have really shifted from uh, depending to agreement, we'd love to pray with you. See, our God is a promise keeper, and His promise is nothing less than the eternal King, the Son of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the second question that I want to close with this morning, that this passage seeks to answer, isn't just, okay, what does God promise to David, but how does David respond? And in David's response, we'll find the life that makes sense for those of us who have come to believe and depend on all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus. So how does David respond Let's take a look at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Jump down to verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you're redeeming for yourself from Egypt, a nation, and it's God's. The first way that David responds to all of God's promises is by exalting his king. He exalts his king. The the human king exalts the divine king, recognizing that all of God's promises are dependent on God, not on him. He exalts his king. And really, that's the life that makes sense if you've come to depend on the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus. It's a life of exalting your king. And, and we come to see what it actually looks like to exalt our king as we look at David. I mean, where where does he begin? Utter humility. Utter humility. Who am I that you would choose me? Humility exalts God because it says that everything that you're doing is dependent on you. So he exalts his king through humility, thinking much about God. And then he, the twin brother to humility is thankfulness. He expresses this intense gratitude. It's like, I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this, and yet you give it to me, and I have nothing that I can give you in return. You won't even let me build you a house, so I'll just be thankful. He just overflows with gratitude. It's the life that exalts our King. Is this life of overflowing gratitude? And please understand, this is not like pop psychology. You know, attitude of gratitude. Let's just be happy and smile all the time. No, that's not what this is. Gra- the attitude of gratitude doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because gratitude carries the connotation of a gift giver that actually rec- is on the receiving end of our gratitude. Of our thankfulness. See, true thankfulness is always rolled up to God. So as we receive his promises, we respond by exalting him, adoring him. As we often say around City Light, a disciple of Jesus is first and foremost a worshiper, someone growing in love for God. That's how David responds. He exalts his king. And I just want to encourage you, that's the life that makes sense for us. That's what I want City Light to be about. What I want us to be known for is a people that are so moved by the promises of God that what we do is exalt our king because that's who we love. That's what David does. He responds to this promise-keeping God by exalting his king, but then he does one other thing. In verse 27, we see it. He says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant." So he's talking about the promise, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house. Of your servant. David responds to God's promise to build him a house by asking him to build him a house. You see, what, he's, what David's doing here is he is saying, God, I, I want to take those promises and I'm going to ask you to fulfill them. It's an act of great faith to pray God's promises back to him. But notice he, he asks God to make it so, so that God will look great. David is exalting his king and now he wants the king to fulfill his promise so he can display his kingdom. David exalts the king and wants to display his kingdom. That's how he responds. And that's really what the New Testament calls us to as we respond to the promises of God in the gospel, to exalt our king and to display to the world what his kingdom is like. And the primary way we do that is through a community that reflects the character of God. The primary way that we display to the world what our king, what his kingdom is like is through a community that reflects his character. A church or a city group that reflects his character. I mean, think about it. God is utterly committed to us, so we display his kingdom through total commitment to one another, being involved in one another's lives, being present. Our God is totally dependable so we reflect his character by asking one another to pray. Will you pray for me? Can I pray for you? And actually then doing that right then and there. Our God is a truth telling God so we display what his kingdom is like by speaking the truth to one another. And then also asking for forgiveness and extending grace and mercy. A community that reflects the character of God and invites those who don't yet know him into it. That is what it means to display the kingdom. So I guess the the question I want to close with, in light of our promise-keeping God, who promises that he will save everyone who puts their hope in Jesus, who depends on him, in response to this promise-keeping God, let's change it from a, question to an encouragement. Exalt your king. Display his kingdom. It's the joyous life that makes sense in light of all the promises of God finding their yes and their amen in Jesus. I wanna, in a moment, we're going to respond to our promise-keeping God. We'll, we'll sing songs of praise and adoration because we want to exalt our king. I'd invite you, if you want to move to the back for prayer for any reason, do that. That's a way that we display the kingdom by depending on one another in prayer. Maybe you need to make like, a commitment in this time, like, okay, here's a way I want to be displaying the kingdom or exalting the king in light of his goodness to me that you know, I, I want to do, and you need to take a moment just where you are, write it down, that sort of thing. But also specifically, I want to invite you to the communion table. Uh, The night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's it's his blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, as as often as you eat and drink, you remember. You proclaim the Lord's death. Communion is a meal of Remembrance. At communion, we remember the promises that God has fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. Promises that we can bank our entire lives, both our life and our death, upon. And really, communion is also, it's a, it's a type of empowerment because when you remember His promises, it fuels you for your mission of exalting the king and displaying his kingdom. So come and remember his promises that empower you for your mission.